from Alaska Teen Media Institute. I'm ATME producer Ada Bjorkman. This is Zoom Room, a youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. Julia Longoria is the host and managing editor of the podcast The Experiment, a collaboration between The Atlantic Magazine and New York Public Radio. Before starting The Experiment, Longoria was a producer on The Daily from the New York Times and on Radiolab from WNYC. In this episode, three of our senior producers chat with Longoria about her career in podcasting. She talks about her experiences working on those different podcasts, how she got into her field, and how podcasting has changed over the years. Here's Julia Longoria speaking with ATME senior producers Daisy Carter, Quinn White, and Chloe Chobal. How did you kind of get into producing and hosting um, radio shows? Growing up was like always kind of a wallflower. Like I was a pretty shy kid um, and I listened to a lot of public radio, um, like in the car on the way to school. Um, And I never really knew how you get into it. Um, But in college, there was a college radio station. um, So I showed up to those meetings and learned how to put together a documentary on audacity. I don't know if you guys ever ever use that program. It's like, (laughs) it's a tough one to use. Um, But from there, I also, I just called up my local radio station in Miami, where I'm from in summers in college. Um, And I was like, do you guys have an internship? And they were like, nope. But if you want to come hang out, like come and learn from us. Um, So I did that. um, And that's kind of how I got my start. And, you know, once you meet one person, like the one person at WLRN in Miami, new people at WNYC in New York. So I got an internship at WNYC and it kind of built like that. That's really cool. So it really is kind of like, like who you know, and kind of that's how you kind of get into the podcasting gig. Yeah, I, I think like, you know, public radio especially is like actually full of really kind people in my experience. <laughs> um, so a lot of people would just kind of be generous with their time. And um, and that's how I kind of got my foot in the door. How do you think the world of podcasting has kind of changed since you started doing podcasting? It's changed a lot. I started in, I guess, like um, 2009. Um, so Serial hadn't come out and podcasts weren't a huge thing. Um, I feel like when I went into it, there just weren't that many jobs in public radio. There were like jobs at public radio stations. And now it just feels like it's blown up. Like, so like everyone wants a podcast, so many private place, you know, private institutions, like journalistic institutions, like the New York times and the Atlantic, like they're interested in making podcasts, not to mention like all of the, you know, like the companies that are not journalistic that want a podcast. Um, So it's an exciting time, I think, um, because there's just so many opportunities and a ton of money being pumped into podcasts, which was not the case when I started. So you mentioned that you do kind of work with um, 
with this podcast. And I was just wondering, what's your favorite aspect of storytelling? And if you can talk about some of the differences, um, some of the different techniques that you use. I mean, I think my, my favorite part of the process is talking to people. Like, I love having an excuse to just pick up the phone and because I say that I'm from like New York Public Radio, people will be like, sure, I'll talk to you. Um, so I, I really, that's my favorite part. Um, I, I know some people are like more shy or like whatever. I feel like I'm a shy person who actually just really wants to talk to people. So this is like a cool excuse. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of different techniques. So I feel like for every story, we, I just try to do what this what the story calls for right so like we'll have storyboarding meetings so after doing a bunch of interviews um if, if the story calls for a lot of different interviews and it's more of a documentary narrative story we a lot of teams that i've worked on will will do a storyboarding meeting where um everyone listens to selects what we call selects of all the interviews so if the interview is like an hour and a half long a producer cuts it down to 20 minutes and then like a big group of people listens to all those 20 minute selects and then we talk about like what are our favorite moments what are like the best like the hot tape we call it um and um get a whiteboard and a bunch of post-it notes and write down all those moments um and then think about how to structure the story to include the the best tape and also just like think about what kind of tape you'll need in order to move the story along. And yeah, I mean, other, I'm trying to think of other techniques. I mean, like when sometimes you'll do a story and it's just one or, you know, for the experiment, we do just one um, interview and figuring out how to structure that. I think a lot of times, you'll come up with different ideas for how to structure it. Like we'll make an outline and draft an outline and then you'll kind of move pieces around. And um, I think when it comes down to it, story structure often is just like usually chronological order. <laughs> like how did it happen in real time is usually what you end up uh, landing on. Like a lot of times we're like, we're going to do this cool story structure where you like go forward and backward and forward and back. And then you're like, this is too confusing. Just make it chronological. So you were a producer on The Daily. What did your job as a producer entail on that show? At The Daily, we have a morning meeting every day. Um, we have actually like two morning meetings. So sometimes as a producer, I would attend the like big... New York Times um, meeting where all the editor, the major editors of the sections get together and talk about like the big news of the day and the plan for that day. Um, and so as a producer, you'd have to come back to um, the audio team morning meeting like 20 minutes later and share with the audio team. Um, and a lot of it was just like talking through what that day's episode should be if we didn't have an episode scheduled. So sometimes we would turn something around in one day um that's kind of the beginning of the process and then um we help you know book the reporter that day because a lot a lot of things that you know a lot of times on the daily you hear a new york times reporter so we'd be getting in touch with them booking a studio getting that you know prepping um the host michael's questions 
for that reporter um, and um, running, helping to run that interview too. So helping to coach the reporter and answering Michael's questions um, to follow like the story structure that we laid out when we set up the questions. Um, so that's like, basically you would do anything and everything that needed to be done. Um, then after the interview was done, you would do a first cut of the interview along with other producers. It was super collaborative. So you'd work alongside other producers. Sometimes you'd pull archive, be the one pulling archival, you know, like when you'd hear like news tape or whatever, you'd help pull that for those moments. And um, yeah, and then you go into edits late into the night. <laughs> so yeah. When you're putting out a podcast like The Daily, where you're putting out like five or six episodes a week, what does that process look like? How do you come up with all that content and how how do you like manage such a quick turnaround? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mix, right, of um, figuring out sort of the easier version of the show that you could turn around in one day. So that's, you know, interviewing one New York Times journalist who's easy to book. Um, and then having like a slate of more ambitious long-term projects that are a little more evergreen that aren't super tied to the news um, so that you're always kind of balancing near-term and long-term um, stories. I think, you know, I think you learn to work collaboratively, right? Like when you make, when you're turning around a 30 minute, you know, 20 to 30 minute episode that's narrative in one day, there's no way that just one producer can do it. So usually we would split it up in halves and, um, you know, cut half of the, one producer would cut half of the interview and the second producer would cut the other half. So it's really important to communicate what the outline of the episode is going to be. So you're, you know, you're pulling the right stuff um, and have a really clear vision for what it's going to be uh, from the beginning. Um, I mean, I think you just learn to be really quick. You learn not to be precious. You learn to just like <laughs> chop it up and um, kind of move on. <laughs> I mean, that's the beauty of a daily thing, right? I think I've worked on shows like More Perfect from Radio Lab that come out, you know, there's like six episodes a year. <laughs> so each episode is like this precious flower that you're like, you know, you're like totally like obsessed with making perfect where if you're making something every day, you're like, nah, that one wasn't that good. <laughs> Let's make a better one tomorrow. <laughs> Can you talk about the difference between how a podcast, um, how podcasts are produced, maybe comparing how the daily was, is produced rather than the radio lab. So the daily was very focused on um, making, giving a platform to New York times print journalism um so uh as a producer at the new york times there were less you know there it was less about like oh i have a curiosity and i'm gonna pursue it and i'm gonna do all these interviews and it was more about like how do i make the new york times journalist whose story i'm interested in sing like and how do i make them understand what makes a good audio story how do i bring that journalism and bring that story that already kind of exists in print to life in audio. Where in Radiolab, it was a lot more um, 
you just hear a lot more producers on mics and a lot more it's really driven by curiosity um the times was driven by like like news relevance a lot of the time um where radio lab was less so i think radio lab is was really quite driven by um what we what we call brain dumps so a lot of t- like radio lab sounds supernatural um like it's just regular conversation because a lot of it is like you get in a in a recording studio and you sort of just talk into a mic like jad or whoever the host is uh like lulu or or latif now they would um ask the producer a bunch of questions about the story and that forms like the basis for um the narration of the piece is like actually just an interview i don't know if i'm totally making sense but um and then the daily was a little more scripted um it was a little because it was a shorter turnaround um they had to kind of know what they wanted to say going in or radio lab was a little bit more like freeform cuz the turnaround time for radio lab stories was a lot longer there were a lot of differences but that's kind of a key one speaking of radio lab i'm wondering if we one of us were to like pitch a show to radio lab what do you think would be like the defining characteristic that would make it a radio lab story yeah that's a good question um I think with Radiolab, what they really are attracted to a lot of the time is stories where you're not sure how to feel about it by the end. <laughs> like stories that are about um, really morally complicated um, issues and stories that have that kind of take a couple of twists. Um, so like a story that I did for Radiolab was about uh, American Samoa. Um, American Samoans, it's the only place in the United States. So American Samoa is an American, a US territory, Um, but it's the only US territory where you are not a US citizen by being born there. So like other territories like Puerto Rico or Guam, if you're born there, you're an automatic citizen. American Samoa, not so. So that's like one weird thing, right? That's like one twist. And then the second twist of that story is that America, a lot of American Samoans do not want to be U.S. citizens. And you're like, huh, why? Um, so I think a lot of Radio Lab stories, like they start out with an initial problem or twist or like curiosity, and then they take this second turn. Like another recent episode about i don't know if you guys heard the one about um it's about death the queen of dying so initially it's like um the producer rachel cusick talks about how her mom died when she was really young and she found these like stages of grief um that she that she was supposed to go through but she like found that her her grief and grieving her mom wasn't following those stages and so she got angry at the person who created those stages and wanted to find them so she found the queen of death who is this 
um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's this famous, like, doctor. Um, and then she ends up, like, kind of falling in love with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the process. Um, like, thinks she's really cool and whatever. But you'll see, like, there's always, like, these little, like, twists. Like, oh, you thought this? Nope, you're wrong. You know? Um, so I think uh, Radiolab pitches um, kind of tip, you know, pull you back and forth uh, a couple times. Uh, switching to the experiment, can you tell us about that podcast and how it came to be? A friend of mine at The Atlantic and a friend of mine at WMYC, um, they had been for a long time trying to form some kind of partnership. Um, the Atlantic uh, had just um, done its first like big ambitious narrative series called floodlines um and wnyc had an interest in like partnering with them somehow um so that partnership happened before i got there but um they approached me because uh, i had worked on the show more perfect um which they really liked and um thought that the atlantic is really like in line with more perfect because it's like a pretty historical look it's like about big ideas and about like what is america what is it supposed to be what are the big ideals but doing answering those big questions through like small stories um so that's what they wanted to do that's what i love doing is like finding like the smallest sometimes like the dumbest way possible into like a big important story um so I was like, yeah, I want to go make a show like that. Um, and we, um, you know, brainstormed together for a few weeks and ultimately came up with the name The Experiment because it felt like sort of the the thing that we're trying to do is um, tell stories about these little experiments that are actually about big ideas. So the American experiment in our everyday lives. Can you explain like what your position on the show is? Yeah, uh, so I'm I'm the host of the show. Um, I am also like the managing editor technically. So I a lot of times I will um, be editor on stories. So I'll listen to drafts and suggest changes and give big picture ideas. Um, other times I'm. Um, like more hosting so i'm like doing the interview i'm like narrating the top of the show i'm like kind of anchoring it uh every episode i'm doing that i'm like anchoring it but um sometimes i also produce because i really love producing so i'll still like you know be deep in the tape and and um help do pieces that i pitched and, and stuff like that um so i mean our team is really small we're only like six people um, for a weekly show. So we kind of do, we're like, a, we do a little of everything. Um, everybody does big and small tasks, including me. Can you tell us about the pitching process for that show? We have a pitch meeting every month and producers will come uh, with an idea. Um, and, you know, I think what makes an experiment story is um, it's about really big 
important ideas, but has a really small way in. So it's about like a person going about their lives in some way and they like kind of bump up into like this big epic, these big epic forces in some way. Um, and so like our stories all, even if they're only one interview, they all have a narrative arc. So it's like a person, it has to have plot. Uh, people go through something um, that like reveals to them uh, something about the country or about their own lives or surprise them in some way. Um, and yeah, people will come with stories like original ideas that have nothing to do with Atlantic stories. Um, but sometimes people, you know, producers will come with um, Atlantic pieces that they want to try to turn into audio somehow. Um, and we also, you know, try to integrate with the magazine and hear about what are the big print stories coming up to see if they have audio potential. So a lot of our pitching is just staying in touch with the, the print side and, um, you know, keeping our finger on that pulse too. Do you have a particular favorite um, episode you've worked on? Yeah, I, I guess one of my favorite episodes we've done on the experiment is um, our episode about vaccines. Um, we just re-aired it this week, actually. Um, but it's one that um, is kind of morally ambiguous in the way that Radiolab sometimes is. Um, and I just love, like our producer, Gabrielle, who's like a genius, she just called up this church. And it's so rare that like a cold call will result in the most delightful tape. Um, we found like this amazing pastor and it's just like all like unfolds like in tape so well. Um, so that one's, that one's one of my favorites. Coming up in just a moment, Julia Longoria talks about how to make a podcast stand out to listeners in an increasingly vast landscape of content. Plus, she tells us what her three deserted island podcasts are. We'll be right back. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can create podcasts like the one you're listening to right now, conduct interviews, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. We have opportunities for both in-person and remote work, and these are paid projects. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24 living in Alaska and interested in joining ADME, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to our interview with podcaster Julia Longoria. So one of the things that I'm really curious about is these days, like especially like in quarantine, like podcasts have got so big there's literally so many podcasts out there and with so many podcasts how do you how do you make one stand out I yeah I mean I think there's you know a lot of people have different tastes um and I think that for me I just like shows that um where like the makers of them get out of the way, you know, like, um, 
that take you to places you would have never been otherwise that expose you to you know ideas or perspectives that you wouldn't have thought of that challenge you um so that's my taste i think like working with the atlantic which is this institution obviously like that's been around forever was like is like a a way to get an, a built-in audience to start with you know that was um huge for us um but yeah i think yeah and i think i think the way you know and it's just one way to get an audience but the way that we've been able to grow is like by trying to form relationships with other shows that have audiences um and like whenever radio lab gives us a shout out we get a big bump in listeners um it's not perfect it's like you know there are these gate gatekeepers and then how do you break out if you're not with the gatekeepers um it's not easy but i think it is like like a lot of things it's kind of about relationships so so like i'm like i think most of us yeah all of us are from alaska um so it can be kind of hard to kind of break out of that shell or sometimes people you know move to big cities to get like better jobs or more jobs um to pursue like other careers especially in media um do you think this is kind of changing um with the increase of you know remote work yeah i I hope so. Like I moved to Denver. <laughs> Not that, I mean, Denver is a big city too, but um, uh, I think that um, we've at least like the, the experiment started in pandemic and we've never been in person. Um, so I think a lot of teams have proven to themselves that they can do this uh, remotely, which is huge. So I hope that I, I just think there are too many journalists inside the cities um, and that that journalism suffers for it. Um, so I, I'm hoping that this is a big opportunity to, you know, expand the the resources and like the wealth of knowledge outside of the city centers. Do you prefer working remotely or do you like more like face to face? I mean, I, I I love the flexibility of remote work, you know. Um, I love also, like, I think I get a lot more done. Like, when I'm deep inside a story, like, I just, like, roll out of bed at, like, 7.30 or something. And, like, when I'm on a roll like that, like, I'll just, like, just, like, dive in. And I don't have to any distractions. Like, in an office, inevitably, like, I don't know, whatever. People are tapping. And it's fun. To, that's the thing. It's, like, it's fun to be in an office. <laughs> Because you get all those distractions. Um, so I miss, I miss like the community aspect of office life. Um, but I like that I can really focus. And I like that, like, you know, my partner moved to Denver and I can do that too. <laughs> so, yeah. So obviously, like since the pandemic, we've been doing a lot of um, interviews over Zoom. But obviously before this, we did interviews in person. So can you kind of mention like what are the pros and cons of in-person interviews versus remote interviews? I think it really depends on the personality of the person you're talking to, you know? Um, I have found that you can do such good interviews with phone tape because people are like used to being on the phone. Like it's a natural thing to like 
just talk and share intimate details when they're just talking on the phone. Um, uh, I think the biggest pain is like when for us, like the way we've been doing it to, to keep um, good quality audio is we've been asking sources to record themselves on their phone. So they like open a voice memo and they just hold it like they would a phone and also like have their headphones on. So they're like, and talk to us. And it's like, if you're not used to doing that, it's like, it just gets in the way of having a real human conversation a lot of times, especially if you're dealing with someone who's not tech savvy. So that's a huge pain. Um, Oh my gosh. And like talking, I talked to like this elected official once and like he couldn't figure out how to use our program. And we kept like, it was like 45 minutes of like this like high profile person, like trying to get, it was like a total nightmare. Um, so, and, and, and also like, I think when you're doing really intimate stories about people's like personal lives and like big events in their life, like, there's nothing like, you know, just being able to make high, eye contact and like smile and like make a joke and just, I don't know, just like be present with them in person. Um, we, we were able to do our first reporting trip and I was just reminded of like how much better it is to be in person. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm like not really answering your question. But I feel like there's like a lot of there's a lot of benefits to being in person for sure. Um, I guess the benefit of being remote is that like money is no object, um, and um, you can just get a lot more like geographic diversity in your journalism, and you can get um, you can just do more of it more quickly. So. Okay, I'm glad I get to ask this question because I think it's super fun. You're on a deserted island. <laughs> Your phone only has enough space for three podcasts. We're going to go with like podcast series. You can pick a series. It doesn't have to be three individual episodes. Um, so which podcasts do you choose? It's a good question. Um, I guess it's so hard because like once you make so much stuff, you just stop listening <laughs> because <laughs> you're just listening to interviews all the time um but um i think i always end up listening to radio lab so i think radio Lab's one of them um a show i really loved that i haven't heard but like would love to spend more and it doesn't it, it ended but i loved gravy which was a show about uh food and politics in the south um <laughs> and um i guess i'd pick i'd pick um lately i've been listening to today explained so i would pick those three what i'm really curious about is early in your career did you ever find yourself struggling through jobs that you didn't really like as a young reporter definitely and can you maybe tell us a little bit about that yeah. Um, I think early on, I knew that I wanted to work in long form. Like I knew what I really liked was like a, telling one story over the course of like 20 minutes. Um, but my first jobs were in newsrooms. Um, and so 
I don't really have like a newsroom sensibility. Um, but I knew that like, I was not good. <laughs> like my, I, I was not good at being a producer and I had no idea how to do a 20 minute piece. Um, so I think, and I worked on like in general, as a general assignment reporter, I worked on the business desk, which was like not my interest really. Um, I worked in health news as well, like also not like wouldn't have been my first choice, but um, I just knew that um, I needed reps. Like I needed, like I produced a seven minute round table about business news every week where we had like two different journalists come on and talk about that week's like business news. Often it was like about the stock market or about the Fed or whatever. It was like not my passion project, but I produced, I produced the expletive out of it. You know, like I was like, I'm going to make the best seven minutes that I can possibly make. Cause I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but it was like, I kind of treated it as like a playground, um, like to just really, um, learn the craft of it. Um, and it was always trying to talk to people who had the job that I wanted, you know, like always reaching out, even though it feels terrible <laughs> to like, be like, why? <laughs> like, I'm a big fan of yours, but like writing thoughtful emails that, that show like to the person, like, I've listened to your work, admire your work. Here's why I want to know like how you got to where you are. I'd love to pick your brain about what you do and how you do it. Like I was always writing those emails um, to people and a lot of people respond. Worst thing that could happen is they don't respond. So what past jobs do you credit with getting you to where you are now? Well, I feel like all of them, <laughs> like, like, I feel like every job was really important in like, I don't know, like we're, we're a long form show now. The experiment's like 20 to 40 minutes. Um, but so much of the little moments that we create in the show, I know how to do because um, I worked in a newsroom and I worked like in like two minutes. I knew, how, I knew how to make a two minute moment. <laughs> um, and so um, I think... Um, it's just like, you never know how the experience that you're doing right now is going to affect like your career down the line. And just like, I always think of it as like seasons of life, even if it's not the best job, like it's a season that's going to pass and you'll also like learn a ton from it. Um, so yeah, I feel like my, I mean, I'm glad I like called up WLRN randomly when I was like 18. <laughs> um, Cause if I hadn't done that, I don't know that I would be where I am. It kind of seems like a lot of like these jobs that people get like early on in their careers as journalists and um, like in media are all about like building that foundation of like how to tell a good story and like how to make a good podcast. Right. Totally. Totally. So is there like a certain project that you worked on early in your career that you're particularly really proud of? I guess like the 
very first time that I tried to do something long form um, was about the switch to chip cards, chip credit cards, um, because I was working in, on the business desk. And I asked my boss to like give me some freedom to like play. Like it wasn't my normal job. My normal job was to do like a seven minute round table um, and to like pitch short pieces that were like two to four minutes. Um, so I was like, let me play. And it was pretty delightful. Like I found like apparently the, the credit, the chip on the credit card is actually invented by this French eccentric French man who like I found his ex-wife because um, he has since passed. But like <laughs> um, it just like I tried to find like a delightful way into like this very boring topic. Um, so I was proud of that. <laughs> When you do, obviously, a lot of interviews, you encounter a lot of different kinds of people. Like you said earlier, like sometimes you get a really charismatic person or sometimes you get not so charismatic people. So what do you think uh, you've learned interviewing? Um, yeah. What do you think you've learned about people over interviewing? I think that people often will match your approach. So if you come in with a list of questions that you're reading, um, they will be very stilted and will like not be, not hang. <laughs> um, so if you come in with a very like open and um, charismatic way <laughs> that usually gives you a better chance of getting people to open up to you, um, which is, feels weird. Sometimes it feels like you're like, being manipulative and that's like the last thing I want to do. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, you're both human beings. You both have like stories that brought you to where you are. Um, so I try to treat it like that. Um, and I try to also like not be afraid to stumble myself. Like I can like not be afraid to be a little clumsy or whatever. Cause it just puts them at ease. You know, like they don't have to be on, at least for the kinds of things that I want to make. Like, I don't want like the BBC, like very like, um, which is a different and very important form of journalism. But what I want to do is like get, you know, people's emotions and their stories and their personal stories. So acting clumsy and open and warm um, is like key. <laughs> Do you have any memorable interviews or interview moments? I was interviewing this. So we did this story. The first episode of the experiment is about this place in Yellowstone National Park where technically a legal scholar says you might be able to get away with murder because of like a constitutional loophole. Um, <laughs> and um so there was this, it's never actually been tested because no one's ever tried to murder someone there. Um, but someone did kill an elk there. <laughs> and um, his he actually sued saying that like, there wasn't a way for the, you know, for Wyoming to um, actually put him in prison for shooting, for poaching an elk because he was in this place. Um, so anyway, the point is I interviewed this elk hunter and I'm from Miami, Florida. I have no experience with hunting or elk or anything. Like I was like trying to find common ground with this man. Um, and I, um, 
I think I said, tell me. And he thought I said tummy. And he thought I was referring to the elk's tummy. But and he was like this gruff man. And I thought, like, I was like, I'm sorry, whatever. But then he just started laughing. And like, there's like one little misunderstanding on in phone tape, like totally opened him up. And, um, and he we had we really weren't having a good interview before that moment, but then because he thought I said tummy, um, we just like hit it off after that. So that's actually in the first episode. You can hear it. <laughs> Do you have any pet peeves like in audio productions? Yes. Um, I have many. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hate when, um, I hate when producers make it about them when they don't need to. Um, I hate when uh, there's a lot of build up to something like you're like, I'm arriving and I'm going up the escalator and I'm doing it. And it's like, I gotcha. Like, (laughs) you don't need to tell me (laughs) just arrive. (laughs) Um, There's like tropes like that, um, that I'm just like over. (laughs) Um, Those are the two main ones. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> How about like any sort of like cringy like interview kind of techniques that you can think of? I think like when an interviewer is reading from a paper, you can tell, you know, I think like um, the more you can like study your interview questions before you go in. What I do, especially if I'm doing it in person is like, I have my list, I have it on my phone and I look at it and before I go in and then I just don't look at it until a moment in the interview when I say, I wanna make sure I've asked you all of my questions. Let me just look at my list and then look um, to make sure I didn't miss anything. But that way you're present and that like allows the, the person you're talking to to be present with you too. Is there any advice that you would give to an aspiring journalist or a podcaster, maybe someone like ourselves? <laughs> yeah, I feel like um, the main thing is to be unashamed about um, asking people you admire for advice, about reaching out to people about opportunities, um, be unashamed, like in cover letters or in, you know, in pitching yourself, like fly your freak flag. <laughs> um, if you have one, like, uh, cause I think it was only until I stopped, like I, I had a moment where I was like, maybe I won't even do this. And I just started kind of like caring less about how I was writing my cover letters and just like, was like, let me just try this crazy thing. Um, that that's when I kind of broke through and got the jobs that I wanted. Um, so yeah, I think trust your instincts and, um, be unafraid to, um, try to get in the rooms that you want to be in. That was Julia Longoria speaking with At Me Senior Producers, Daisy Carter, Quinn White, and Chloe Chobal. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of Alaska Team Media Institute. Our show's theme music is by Kendrick Whiteman. Alaska Team Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including Rosie Robards and Della Ketchins. 
The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Ada Bjorkman. Thanks for listening.